Makers of Sport Podcasts, Episode 35, with Tom O'Grady. Episode 35 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. Today on the show, I'm happy to welcome Tom O'Grady to the podcast. Tom was hired by David Stern as the NBA's first creative director, where he led the design and rebrands of many franchises throughout his tenure in the 90s there. After a 13-year stint with the league, Tom returned home to Chicago to found Game Plan Creative, a strategic sports and entertainment marketing brand and video production agency, where he currently continues to serve as partner and chief creative officer. Through Game Plan Creative, Tom has worked with clients such as the Chicago Fire, Chicago Blackhawks, Chicago Cubs, Houston Astros, Texans, the New York teams, the Giants, Jets, and Yankees, and numerous professional sports leagues. Welcome to the show, Tom. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to come aboard the podcast. Thank you so much, Adam. It's a pleasure to be uh, online here with you. So, Tom, I gave a a brief introduction to you, uh, but I'd like to go a little bit more in depth and kind of give listeners uh, an opportunity to hear your story. Can you give us a little bit more about your background and your eventual path sort of leading up to today? Sure. Um, I'm a Chicago-born and raised a kid. Uh, my family has always been a very sports-centric bunch, Adam. Since I can remember, our family get-togethers have always consisted of sports talk, competitive games of some types or other. You know, it just seems to be that's the type of family we are. And I think that love of sports in my family can be traced back to my two uncles who were very talented ball players back in their time. Uh, each played at the highest level of semi-pro baseball, I guess what would be now the equivalent of AAA baseball. And uh, their careers were cut short by uh, this thing called World War II. They, uh, they went overseas and they had, uh, one was a White Sox prospect, one was a Yankee prospect, and they spent four years in the war there. And uh, unfortunately, once they got back, they were, you know, different people. They had aged uh, somewhat and their dreams of playing pro ball were dashed. But uh, they were the guys that were kind of our, 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 kind of the man's man in the family. The guys would have a cigarette and a beer and watch the Blackhawk games on Sundays or the Cub games, and they're the ones that took us to the old Chicago Stadium to watch Bobby Hall and Stan Makita with the Blackhawks. And so we were kind of raised in a family of sports, and so that's where I got the sports bug almost right from as long as I can remember. You have to remember in Chicago, too, I mean, sports is a huge part of the social currency of this great city. And so I followed sports religiously as a kid, you know, following franchises like the Monsters of the Midway and the original six Chicago Blackhawks and their beloved Chicago Cubbies. And of course, later on, the Jordan dynastic Chicago Bulls. So, you know, when you're in Chicago, you know, you think about food, you think about cold, you think about sports and you do think about architecture, too. So that's kind of a big deal here. You know, in Chicago sports is a really big deal here. And I was privileged to watch guys like Banks and Williams and Maddox and Sosa and Peyton and Butkus and Sayers Erlacher, the 85 Bears and guys like Hull and Makita and Esposito playing at the old Chicago Stadium and Wrigley Field and you know, 
the old Soldier Field and even the underrated Comiskey Park. I mean, we we you know ate, drank, and and, and played sports uh, as a kid. So it it was just part of the the social fabric of my life growing up. And as, as long as I can remember, I was attached to sports. So that's really, I think, where I come from. I, I think I've got a passion for, the, I'd be doing this if I wasn't in sports branding. I would be following sports religiously. So it's just part of who we grew up, grew up as. I think the creative side, my, if there is much of a creative side, came from my mom. She was a really creative person. I remember her decorating her modest home in this quaint neighborhood back here in Chicago, and she loved to color coordinate our our paint, and as well as when we go out on holiday get-togethers, my brother, my holiday outfits were always matching. She was kind of a, a uniform branding person and didn't even know it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, and I think I inherited a lot of her touch for that. Uh, she just had a way of color coordinating things, and that's just what she did. You know, she was terrific. She, we used to laugh, you know, we, we came from blue collar means, but my mom dressed us like Kennedy's. And, uh, and even today, you know, I, I see some of the pictures of us in the past and it's, it's heartwarming to see how much care and attention she put into it. And, uh, and it, so that's, I think where I get some of my creative uh, flair. Um, you know, we, as kids, uh, in the neighborhoods back in, in Chicago here, you lived on these, you know, blocks of bungalows. So there was, a zillion kids flying around at any moment back in the day, you know, and we, in my neighborhood, our friends played three sports. It was baseball in the summer, football in the fall and hockey, both ice and street hockey in the winter and spring. So we, you know, I think we focused on hockey the most because the Blackhawks were so good when I was growing up in the sixties and early seventies. And I can recall in class, we'd sit and draw the NHL team logos of all the teams back then. And I think that's where I caught the logo and uniform design bug. You know, we, we used to be paying attention to class and in the back we'd be drawing logos and coloring them in with the old Venus coloring pencils. I don't even know if people would even know what that is today, but boy, we had a lot of fun with it. Of course, the Blackhawks logo was the hardest logo to draw because it was so elaborate. Yeah. So we got <laughs> right. really good at drawing logos because we had to draw the toughest one, except, well, maybe the old LA Kings purple and gold crown logo was a little bit tougher, but I remember those two being the toughest. And then we, we were pretty creative kids. We used to draw hockey players on the back of blank three by five note cards. And we put them in and, you know, Roger Bear, this guy and that guy, we draw them up and we cut them out. And then we take them to a little stand, a little paper stand and we'd create little tinfoil pucks. And we'd play these little games, you know, in the back of the class with these players, you know, and the nuns would be screaming at us and yelling at us and we'd, pay attention for a while. And then we go back to doing our thing. We were good kids. Sports actually, I think in many ways kept us out of a lot of trouble. Cause if you wanted to find trouble in Chicago back in the late sixties or early seventies, it was around the corner almost everywhere. It was not. Oh yeah. 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 It was, it was a, uh, it was a different time and there was a lot of things you could do to get in trouble, but we stayed with sports. I mean, the, the kids I grew up with in these kind of big, you know, blocks of kids, we all, you know, we, we play sports morning till night and we did because you could, you know, back then it was, it was okay to do that. You have 15 kids and you pick sides and right field would be out for baseball. Or you figure out a way to play hockey three on three with two shoes on each side as the nets or whatever. We were, you know, we were kids. We just enjoyed ourselves. We did what was there and, and we stayed out of trouble. And, uh, and I, I stay in contact with a lot of those guys even today. So kind of an interesting background. 
Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no video games back in 1970. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. that's uh, yeah. that's that's kind of become a problem nowadays. I know, uh, I know, just from my own personal experience, like kids aren't playing outside anymore. With you know, on the on the on the basketball courts, the parks, and things like that. You used to be able to go and just find a game or anything going on, and now it's you know everybody's playing Minecraft or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I coach my son's hockey team, and sometimes we'll we'll have an open ice scrimmage, and we'll just put the kids together and we'll say, okay, coaches are off. We're turning coach is off and they'll look at us like what do you mean we're like well there's 15 of you out here figure out how to play you got two goalies figured out and they look at us like we have 10 heads you know like it's everything is so organized and conformed to now it's it's funny so it's like okay throw all your sticks in the middle of the ice whoever picks up the sticks you know go go back forward back and forth they get such a kick out of that and the and the the joy of the game comes out when you see that so it's it's well you know what's interesting i think there's a a little part of of all of us that sort of played sports growing up especially when we went and did it on our own and wasn't like the organized style of sport you know you kind of learn some some life skills as far as like negotiating and things like that (laughs) like you know yeah i got fouled like no that's not a foul so yes (laughs) you have to negotiate the whole thing more time was spent arguing about the plays and the fouls than it was actually playing (laughs) i'm sure we've all been in that same situation absolutely right it sure teaches (laughs) you how to delegate and figure things out and give and take a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Tom, I know you've listened to a couple of the shows and uh, you probably know that I'm a big fan of the NBA of the 90s. And I'm actually, I'm quite nostalgic about it. Um, I'll be 32 years old when this episode goes live next week. And uh, uh, those those years sort of epitomize my childhood. I feel like the NBA in that time period really influenced culture, things like music, MTV and especially fashion and uh, I often think about like the sneakers and the starter jackets and champion uniforms and I think I had somewhere between eight to ten jerseys and and trading cards and that type of thing so can you kind of elaborate on those years as your creative director at the NBA and maybe talk about how the league was so influential on culture well first of all hearing you rattle off all those things you loved about the league you David Stern have a warm place in his heart for you. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we did it up. You know, it's so, it's so interesting because there was this kind of perfect storm of, of things happening at the time. What happened, you know, uh, that, that kind of court style quickly became street trends. Uh, you know, in the late 80s, uh, hip-hop music uh, really started influencing popular culture and the, a lot of the uh, hip-hop artists started using and, and, and leaning and wearing, you know, uh, licensed product from the sports leagues. And it was just not us. It was just not the NBA and the, you know, and the, and the Jersey t- tank tops and the replica jerseys, but the hockey jerseys and baseball caps backwards and crisscross and all those guys. And so I, I think that we didn't really set that trend. I'd like to take credit for that trend, but I think the trend was adopted by, you know, the music industry. And then we just had to hurry up and try to catch up to that. And what I mean by that is we had to create offerings for that customer to expand their product offering. And so I think in some respects that it's very, it's very possible that things like, you know, alternate jerseys, uh, you know, the think about, you know, the alternate jerseys of, let's see here, you know, the Charlotte Hornets went to purple, and the heat red, right. and the magic blue, and the things purple and the bulls black with red pinstripes. That was like, really in some respects, low hanging fruit for the league to, to chase and to create because it, it expanded our product offering rapidly. And so instead of having one Bulls jersey to buy, you had to buy two of them. And the same thing with a lot of these other teams. So 
we right. created this, hopefully the sensational demand for things that, as you described in your little uh, piece to me before this, that you just had to have, you had to wear the replica jerseys of these different teams. And so we had to, we had to move quickly on this. And so we, we worked closely at the time with champion to source out a lot of different uh, alternate jerseys. And then we started at league meetings, actually making presentations to the teams, encouraging them to adopt alternate jerseys and, and the sales figures kind of supported that. So uh, that quickly then shot into redesign. So teams were looking at their brands and they were saying to themselves, like maybe in 1992, the Milwaukee Bucks and the old Bengal Buck, it's time to modernize that uniform with the Phoenix Suns, uh, you know, and Jerry Colangelo uh, coming out to us and saying, hey, we want to update our identity. Uh, I think that the teams realized quickly that branding was having a big part of, of of their local influence and how fans view them as well as kind of this national scope of what was happening, you know, on MTV and BET and and, in popular culture. So we really had to move quickly uh, to be able to, you know, uh, provide fans uh, different looks and feels uh, and different merchandise. Uh, That was real helpful uh, to build our business. And that, and those businesses, those four sports leagues grew fast, you know, that, that business, exploded in the early nineties. And so uh, everybody jumped on board and, uh, and I think it still is happening today. Yeah. Now, now this was a time too, where you guys uh, in talking about expanding your business and being able to, you know, sell more merchandise and apparel, um, you guys sort of started pursuing things like secondary logos and uh, during that time period, right? Yes. Yes. I was, uh, that's a great segue. You know, we, I, I think maybe our, 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 Creative Services Division, along with maybe Ann O.C. at Major League Baseball, were kind of the runs that were really pushing the secondary logos hard. And that was just because we, again, wanted to have an expanded brand selection for our teams, our media partners, and our licensees to be able to offer product on. So uh, we really worked hard. In fact, I remember having conversations in the early 90s and even naming these uh, elements because there was really no vocabulary for what is a partial logo or What's a secondary logo? What, what's a tertiary mark look like? You know, terms like team word marks and ligatures and alternate jerseys and on and on and on. I remember having conversations with, you know, with Ann and some of, uh, some of our designers in-house saying, hey, we got to even like create this category because <laughs> all these words were coming up with make no sense, you know, right. create these terms. So even the nomenclature itself was kind of developed in the early nineties. And then we started putting together more standards to kind of fit. So you had your primary mark and then your peelable partial out of that primary mark. And then you had your secondary marks, which are more iconographic. And then those would slide into the word marks, which were peeled off of the jerseys. And then you would extend that into, you know, the alternate Jersey. And pretty much when it was all said and done in a short amount of time, we created these packages for our teams to extend their brand. And you just saw it kind of go right through all four sports leagues almost overnight and, uh, and greatly expand the team's brand uh, capabilities as well as licensees' abilities to create product. Right. Well, I think it's interesting that you brought up Ann Osi over at the uh, at Major League Baseball. Um, she is just for listeners that that may not know, she's a VP of Design over at the MLB. Um, so I, I find it interesting that sort of you, you guys got together, these different leagues got together, and you sort of developed you know the nomenclature like you were mentioning, and and now it's just become common placed for people to refer to things as tertiary logos and word marks and, and that type of thing. To your knowledge, was the NBA, who, who was the, who 
was the first league to have an in-house creative director at the executive level? To my recollection, the first uh, league was the NFL. And NFL had a design services division in kind of the sliding into the late 1980s. And Bruce Burke was the gentleman who ran NFL creative services or design services that was at the time. Bruce is a tremendously talented guy. And we, uh, we looked at his model and the, the way he built his division. And we said, we want to do certain things that replicate that. You have to remember now, I started in 1990. So we're going way back. And you have to remember in 1990, you know, the Mac was just coming into, you know, major acceptance as, as right. the creative tool of the time. So, you know, I looked at what the NFL did and I said, you know, there's some things I want to do there, but I want to replicate more of an in-house agency environment. And what I mean by that is I wanted to have designers and I wanted to have account executives and I wanted to have production managers. And so I wanted to run it just like an in-house agency. So we had uh, uh, creative request forms that we would actually submit to our internal clients that would have objectives of the project, budgets, timelines, all the criteria that's more commonplace today that you might see even like on a base camp or something like that. There was no such thing back in the, in the nineties for what we were doing. So we had to really kind of control our internal constituents to make sure that we were addressing their needs. Um, and then it's funny because Anne started about five months after I started at the NBA. So she reached out to me and I remember we had lunch at Rusty Stobbs restaurant uh, down on fifth Avenue in Manhattan. And that's when I met her. And we've known each other ever since. So we've had a professional and a, and a good friendship relationship for over 25 years now. And Anne is still one of our clients. So Anne and I especially shared a lot of ideas. And I think if you were looking for like a Mount Rushmore of the, of the league creative directors at the time, you'd have Bruce Burke with the NFL and with Major League Baseball, David Haney from the NHL at the time. Yep. And then, you know, and then finally, um, I'm forgetting myself. So that would be kind of the four groups that really were in place and were really the spearheads of, of those creative divisions in the early nineties. So that was the, the gang of four that were really working, you know, we were, we were somewhat competitors, but then we were also allies because we would want to try something new. Hey, have you ever worked with this designer? What did you think of him? Would you work with him again? Because we really had to protect our collective good when it's all said and done. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of idea sharing. Uh, you know, there was also that that wall that went up when it would get too far away. And I, I didn't need to know about logos or logo leaks from Ann or whatever because we didn't want to get near any of that stuff because we knew all the dangers. <laughs> so we might see something ahead of time that was coming or we might send something that uh, we saw a trend. Or we might have had a bad experience with the designer. So we would share information back and forth just to, to know a little bit more about it. But we were certainly, you know... Uh, I would say uh, collaborators and competitors at the same time. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, you, you kind of touched on a, a, a very good point there and that, you know, these relationships are, are extremely important in, in business. And I mean, to my knowledge, I'm not familiar with Bruce, uh, but I know, you know, the other three of you still work in the sports business today. Yeah. And I, I still believe that Bruce does work in, on some sports properties. He was actually uh, involved, I believe, with the XFL. Uh, and so okay. Bruce, Bruce is more of a, uh, I think he has a few designers that work with him. But he's, he's very much a consultative uh, individual right now. And I think he jumps in on um, kind of startup opportunities. And uh, I have a lot of respect for him. He did some beautiful, they did some beautiful work there in the late 80s. Some of that 
expansion work for like the Panthers and, and, and right. all of that. There was some great work done there. And I think he was one of the spearheads uh, of really kind of leading, leading the, the, the sports branding industry into its, into maturity, because you have to remember that the idea of sports branding around 1990 was a foggy concept at best. Oh, right. <laughs> so, uh, so that was, that was a very uh, electric energized time. And we, uh, we used to go to this big thing called the super show in Atlanta. And that was the massive licensing show that would happen. And it'd be over a hundred thousand people go through there. I think it's now called the magic show in Las Vegas, but that was the incubator. That's where a lot of big things were happening. And that's where we'd see the new trends coming. And that's where all of a sudden you'd see the new boom, here comes the Anaheim mighty ducks logo. Never seen it before. And it unlock, you know, launches a super show or here comes right. the San Jose sharks, new identity. So there was a lot of things happening at the time uh, that were really exciting. Um, so that was, that was really, really pretty, a pretty energized time. Um, I, I mean, you know, you talk about the early nineties, technology and fabrication, uh, happened at the same time. I mean, what, what we could do on the Mac, uh, in the early nineties and then be able to replicate that on material and on uniforms really changed the world and how we did our work. Um, uh, the concept of dye sublimation, taking a white, mesh jersey and then taking that wild looking at phoenix suns shooting sun on a, on a uh, photoshop file and applying mm-hmm. it onto material just changed everything it really was like when you saw cycling shorts in the late 80s or you know ski outfits and that those wild prints that were on those on those on those garments we were now able to do that with champion um, and create these elaborate designs on uniforms and so what happened was we just we just opened up the floodgates on creativity. We tried to do some pretty uh, unique things. Uh, some of it was very successful. Some of it was pretty outlandish. But when it was all said and done, uh, we were pushing the envelope on technology and 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 seeing what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. And and often it was you know uh, pretty eye popping <laughs> yeah. to say the least. Well, well, yeah. I think uh, you know definitely one of the the beautiful things about it, and I, I think with technology you know, as it progressed, you know, you sort of see, you know, people like to experiment and it's like, Hey, this is a, this is an interesting new, new technology. What can we do with this? And then, you know, maybe sometimes you're pushing it a little too much and letting the technology do too much. But I think what's great about it is, is I can go back now and, you know, referring back to earlier being a, a, a child of the nineties, I can go and look at that stuff and say, man, that totally speaks to the nineties. Like it's, yes, <laughs> it's, it's, yes. a, it's, and that's, I think that's the beautiful thing about it. And you see a lot of these sort of throwback uniforms coming back and, and that type of thing. And I know a lot of, uh, a lot of people my age, you'll, you'll see sometimes in, uh, you might see like these little sports blogs pop up where, you know, some 30 year olds doing a blog about like all the things that are happening in the nineties, Yes, <laughs> you know, yes, yeah. and, and, it, and I think it's awesome. Yeah. Well, and, I, and I think some of that, one of the leading drivers of that was, you know, really Alexander Julian, the fashion designer, you know, in the, in the late eighties, he created the Charlotte Hornets uniform, which was that teal and pinstripe design that was really right. unique for sports. And they had to figure out a way to fabricate that. And so champion and, and our internal NBA licensing folks at the time had to figure out a way to create that for the team. And so a lot of the cutting edge work that was done was kind of coordinated through that uh, innovation with Alexander Julian. That was a cool moment for the NBA because it brought 
kind of sports design into a more fashion conversation. Mm -hmm. And it really was kind of a big deal. I mean, I don't think it gets enough credit for being kind of this turning point for sports branding and sports fashion. But to have a heavyweight like that, you know, design your uniform and then have it be as popular as it was, was something that I think all four sports leagues saw and reacted to positively. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, you and I had a, had a conversation and uh, through email and you had sent me a video of Jerry Seinfeld on the David Letterman show where he was kind of talking about how he was a Giants fan and discussing how, you know, each year it's different guys, you know, wearing the same uniform and sort of jokingly saying that he was rooting for laundry. Basically at the end of the day, he's he's rooting for laundry. (laughs) And then, you know, the next year the guy has a different shirt on. It's like, well, now you hate him because he's wearing a different shirt, you know? So, you know, I'm curious as, as someone, that really sort of has been through the growth of of uniforms in terms of popular culture and especially now we see what it is today i mean it's so big with the unveilings and stuff i'm curious what your opinion is and and why are people so engaged with uniforms especially you know in sports where people you know like college football where you know the general consumer is not even ever going to wear this uniform it's it's amazing to me i don't really get it Uh, and i i guess i'm in the middle of all this and i should understand it more but I just think there's a certain kind of tribal loyalty to seeing uh, your team in a new uniform with kind of these supposed cutting edge technologies and all these different things that are being done today. And and it creates a brand story. Maybe we're so maybe we're so astute today to branding where we weren't 15 years ago as much. Uh, Maybe that's part of the appeal. Um, Maybe the you know, the cleverness of, of it all uh, appeals to, to the masses. And so I, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I don't think it's funny because there was not in, in, in 19, you know, in the early nineties, there was, there was no one doing this Adam. basically. There was no sports branding designers and there wasn't team logo developers or whatever. We had to go back and find, you know, our traditional type designers and illustrators and whatnot to create a work. There was no one really creating this. So that story was uh, just unveil a new uniform. Here it is and start wearing it. And I think in the mid nineties when, you know, we had more sophisticated marketers like Nike come on board and start to take over some of the ownership of the design, as well as obviously Adidas and Under Armour. Uh, They needed to create sub stories to kind of frame why they were making these changes. So they just weren't making changes to make changes. So I think part of it has been a narrative that, the, the licensing and the, and the team outfitting guys now do to create the story. You know, guys like Todd Van Horn at Nike, who I knew back in my NBA days, is a really great narrative storyteller. And so how they developed the Cleveland Browns new uniform. Well, there's, you know, it's a, it's a nice update, looks great, but there's not that much different to it, but there's a fabrication story in there. There's a story of the orange being brightened up. And so they take very subtle nuances and they create these stories around it. And then the way they launch it to the public is on these big you know, unveiling parties or you right. know, social media leaks that get out there and they start to create an appetite for it. So I think there's been a lot of clever marketing around the updates. And there's also been a lot of updates to the, the fabrication and, and, and the materials. You know, terms, you know in, in the mid-90s, a term like dry fit didn't exist. So then all of a sudden dry fit becomes a big deal through Nike and, you know, the next story they're telling is it's lighter than previous NBA garments and it's, you know, it wicks the sweat off the body. And so there was these performance stories that started appearing that were never there before either. 
So I think it's been kind of a nice, a perfect storm of this performance story, the narrative about why this represents the team going into the future, and then these kind of background histories, you know, the respective past but represent the future kind of stories that, you know, the partners tell. So I think that they've gotten all very good at crafting the story. You know, when you see a provocative new design, like maybe the Seahawks a couple of years ago, there's a lot going on there. You know? Right. And so what's the story? So it doesn't look too, uh, too cartoony or too over the top. So they, they, they meld the story around it to kind of maybe deflect the blow a little bit. So it's not so shocking to the old Seahawks fans to see that. Right. Right. And so I think yeah. that's part of it. I think they've done a real because they've probably witnessed some of the things we did with, you know, teams like the Atlanta Hawks when we came out with that wild Hawk Jersey or maybe mm-hmm. the Raptors uniform. And maybe those were too jarring for, for some of the public. And so maybe they figured a way to soften the blow a little bit. And in the meantime, you know, have a chance to tell a story about the team. So right. I think that's maybe what's, what's happened. Um, yeah. as part of it. Yeah. Well, and I, I think Nike, uh, they do a really good job of, of, um, you know, kind of building out these little um, mini, you know, landing page websites where it kind of tells, you know, lets you do a deeper dive on the story and kind of the unveilings. And like you were saying, it's not just like this blind unveiling where the consumer completely judge it for themselves. There's a whole story built in it and they do a good job of telling why they made the decisions that they made and, and that type of thing. So it almost makes it a, something that you can't really, really yeah. argue. <laughs> it's, it's outstanding PR. I mean, they're getting ahead of the story. You know, and they're just dipping their toe into it initially. I thought that the Bucks did some clever stuff with this kind of little Twitter thing and the hat appearing at, you know, the Bucks game. And we saw a couple right. of those on Twitter, right? And they teased, 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 teased. And then finally, okay, you know, they did a kind of a show where they did that kind of the quick painting of the logos. And right. so, yeah, I mean, I think to their credit, everybody's, you know, trying to do different things to to excite their, their customers on the new brands that's being launched. And I, a lot of it, I think, is very successful. Right. Absolutely. Well, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the consumer brands like the Nikes and Under Armors of the world that are sort of taking on this service of rebranding? I mean, specifically Nike, we see every year they're launching full out visual identities for the schools. Is that something that uh, are the schools putting too much trust into some of these brands? Or or do you think that would be better suited for like outside, you know, agencies or, or that type of thing? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think it's, 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 it's pretty, you know, I don't want to dumb it down too much, but it's, I think it's a service to the teams because right. when as Nike and you're, you know, you're Oregon, it's kind of a bad example because it's so uh, obtuse or outrageous. But the, fa- <laughs> the fact that, you know, I'm, you know, as Nike, I'm paying you, Oregon, a ton of money to be your official outfitting partner. But in return, I know that I'm going to be making a lot of revenue off of the sales of all your products. And so even though that football jersey is the most visible element in the identity, it's the sideline wear and it's the practice wear and it's the hooded sweatshirts and it's all those other things that Nike gets to put their logo on that they can sell, you know, both in the Oregon team shops, online and whatever, right. that they really, they, they make up that revenue. So I think some of that is kind of the window display or the window dressing for the brand. But when it's all said and done, it's how they extend it into retail that is the, mm-hmm. is kind of the category killer. And I, I know when we, when we were working in the NBA back in the kind of the early nineties and you'll recall this, cause some of this is kind of the coolest or the most kind of outrageous uh, design, you know, the, the Vancouver Grizzlies warm-up jacket had, you know, this jacker trim on the neck and all these different graphics on it. It was pretty, 
pretty loud statement. But, you know, to try to replicate that at retail, uh, Nike soon realized when they took over part of the NBA licensing or the team outfitting with the NBA was it was just going to be too expensive to do that. So they said, you know, we want to design these uniforms and it's okay to have these designs, but we want, what we want to be able to do is create these courtside programs, but we want to have a silhouette that's very similar for all the teams. So we're, we're cutting and sewing the same basic design, but we're changing the colorways in that pattern. So the Grizzlies have the same sleeve colors and teal and a black base, but then the Raptors have, you know, you can see the design and it looks the same from a distance, but the colors change it. So they wanted to kind of build out this whole kind of courtside program in kind of the, in the, in the mid nineties. And I think they did a heck of a job doing that. And then quickly Adidas and you know, champion later on followed, but they were trying to figure out a way to make their money back on the big investments they were making with the leagues in order to support, you know, those substantial investments. And the way they did it was to create these, you know, these retail components uh, that are not just basketball jerseys because, you know, a 56 year old guy might not wear an NBA Bulls basketball jersey <laughs> right. to a game, but he might yeah. wear a kind of a cool, you know, hooded sweatshirt that, uh, you know, Derek Rose might wear on the sideline. And right. so, that's where I think a lot of the money has been kind of made up. And then also just, you know, the enormous, you know, money they make on replica jerseys. Cause still right. that's still the, the a number one, at least I think, as I understand it, the place they make the most money is the replica jerseys that a lot of kids wear. And that's of course for baseball and the cheaper kind of hockey Jersey that you'd see and, and whatever. So I think those are still, those authentic pieces still matter, but I think how the licensees have justified doing these rebrands is we're buying into this big commitment, but we need to be able to have access to all these different you know, categories. And I think that's, that's how it works even today. Right. Well, I know that uh, your firm, Game Plan Creative, you guys, I definitely want to go a, a bit of a deeper dive on them in a minute, uh, but you guys do a lot of work in pro sports. And I don't know if you, you do much with, with college or not, but I am curious, like, what are your thoughts on does does a does an organization like a Nike when they go and they rebrand the athletic department of say an Arkansas or you know one of those big big time BCS uh, universities do they have the best interests of the school in mind in those scenarios in terms of like the long term or is it just simply like we're trying to think about selling merchandise in the in the near future? My hunch is that like. Uh, the NBA days when we were we'd be asked to rebrand the New York Knicks, uh, we had to be careful not to flip the page too far because mm-hmm. they had an identity that had relevancy and they had won championships in that you know orange and blue design and so you know the black thing was kind of hot in the early '90s so we added black but we had to watch what we were doing with the brand. Uh, we would never kind of change the Celtics uniform uh, and never or nor the Bulls nor the Lakers even though you've seen. Subtle changes over time. So I think probably Nike looks at it the same way. When Arkansas is out there and they're looking at that as a rebrand, they have to be careful that they don't pull away too far from the rich heritage and traditions that have been built in that uniform. However, they can certainly sneak in a jersey here or a special day there or a homecoming jersey here or whatever they call it uh, to freshen up the brand. But I think if they're doing their job properly, they have to stay, you know, you have to look at each of the histories of the, of the universities that they're rebranding and you have to make a very conscious effort to, to control yourself and not to go too far over the top with, you know, a program that's had a lot of 
brand equity has won a lot and it's got great traditions. Right. And that's, that's a really balancing act. And that has to come right from the athletic director and, and the guys at Nike, you know, they have to, they have to, they have to control themselves and make sure that they don't go too far because there's a lot of value, I believe in, in, in the heritage and the richness of those, of those previous designs and what's been won through those jerseys. So there's a real balancing act there. When, if you're, if you're going to a, a maybe a, a university that doesn't have a very rich winning traditions, you can kind of crank it up a little bit and make some more radical changes because there's not as much, you're not breaking down as much tradition as you might be with a, a, a highly successful university that's won for years in football or basketball. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's where I come from. You know, uh, the athletic directors might have a different take on it, but that's, that's kind of how we always approached it. You know, there, right. was, there was four or five teams that you just couldn't here in the NBA, couldn't mess with too much. You just had to be careful. Right. To kind of switch past here a little bit and kind of move uh, more towards the modern day and what you've been doing over the, over the last 10 plus years, um, you left the league to become an entrepreneur. And, you know, I realized that some of the tasks that you kind of took ownership of in the NBA were probably entrepreneurial and that you sort of owned the projects and took them from start to finish and that type of thing. But what was it about starting your own business that was appealing after being in such a high level position with a league like the NBA? You know, I, I, I count my uh, blessings every day that I had a chance to work with such a fabulous organization, you know, and work for such incredibly brilliant guys like David Stern and Adam Silver and Rick Waltz. I was I was at it was a classic right place at right time, but I had done it for 13 years, you know, and after 13 years, you start looking in the mirror and you're saying to yourself, okay, I've slayed a lot of creative dragons here. What's next? What, what is the next reiteration of my own personal brand that I need to make? Can I, do I want to stay here another 15 years or do I want to, you know, uh, you know, I was just, I, I started there very early. I was very lucky. So I started there when I was 32. And so mm-hmm. I was just, you know, I was turning 45 and I was like, you know, it's time to maybe it's time to flip the page and try something. And I had done a lot of, you know, we had built, you know, an internal agency. And I thought to myself, well, I can take a lot of those lessons and a lot of those core competencies that I had uh, acquired because you had to do, you had to be able to do a lot of different things at the NBA because so many challenges came across our table. Right. So, you know, I, I took this kind of, what I'd say this series of, of, of creative golf clubs, <laughs> that was me. And put them in this new golf bag called Game Plan Creative, you know, and just put it all together and built this collection of skills and decided to put the shingle out and take that in-house creative services model and turn it into an external creative agency. You know, and that's basically what we did. We kept it we kept it pretty clean and simple. Our business plan is basically a direct result of all of lessons that I learned working and creating that division for the NBA. And so I thought I could do that again uh, uh, as an external resource for teams and leagues and non-sports clients as well. So we, right. we expanded our, 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 our reach and said we would obviously not say no to work beyond the sports uh, category. And, you know, we've, we've been able to do that very successfully. Right. Well, I think I read that your firm has – you guys have three partners, right? And um, I noticed that you – you sort of scale depending on on the project based on, you know, you kind of have this flexible model where, you know, you can bring on independents and full-time contractors and part-time contractors depending on whatever 
whatever project is is thrown your way. And now obviously your firm has had success with this model beating out larger and maybe even more traditional creative agencies. So uh, I'd like to talk about that model a little bit if you can. Um, if, uh, you know, that model is appealing to bigger sports properties and I sort of see it as a future of, of creative firms. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you, you're, you're hitting on a lot of the right bullet points there, Adam. Ultimately, you know, I found a wildly talented uh, creative director in Megan Wood, who's kind of our, our lead uh, driver on the creative side. And then uh, my uh, beloved spouse, Pat, is our uh, chief operating officer. Pat's got a, a terrific background working for uh, Pfizer and uh, has a tremendous print background. And then there's myself, uh, who's got, like I said, I'm kind of the, the Wizard of Oz behind the screen pulling all of the, the different bells and whistles. And that's pretty much our staff. That's our full-time staff. Uh, and then we bring in freelance people as need be. We've, over 12 years, have been able to build a, a really solid unit of video uh, shooters and producers. So when we have a video project, we'll go to our A, B, or C shooter, uh, depending on the budget. And mm-hmm. they've worked with us for a long time in that capacity. We actually have two uh, motion graphics animators, uh, one that actually lives in Israel. And so he's been working with me since I got back to Chicago and he works with us on our large major league baseball projects, both the uh, all-star game and the MLB postseason. So we do all of the animations for those two jewel events for major league baseball. And then any ancillary graphic design work that we need to support Megan's efforts, we have people that we call on and they'll come in and work with us. Uh, and, and it's worked out fabulously. You know, we don't have a tremendous amount of overhead, and so we're able to pretty much staff up quickly to address client needs and then scale back down once the project is done. So while we do, you know, we do uh, lose some of the total bottom line profit, we're not unnecessarily strapped with you know, a lot of um, extra benefits or you know, different things that thicken up uh, a profit line. And, and it makes us very lean and mean so we can address clients needs quickly and move, you know, in and out of projects faster. And, right. you know, it's, it's not unlike what we had at the NBA. When I was, when I first built the division, we had, I believe up until about 1993, we had seven full-time people working for us. And then we probably had a staff of about 16 or 17 in the office on any given day because they were a series of freelance contractors that worked with us. And, uh, we always had kind of a funny saying uh, back in the league uh, was, you know, when in doubt, send it out. So <laughs> we still kind of use that today, you know? We, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it works really well. You know, we can, we could tackle an enormous video project for instance, and we will be spending three or four weeks on that. And then, you know, once it's done, you know, we, we wrap up the, the billing and look at all the expenses and then uh, we bill out and then pay our, our, our videographer and our, our editors and then we move on. So it is a little bit more like the movie business when you see movie credits roll these days and you mm-hmm. see five different companies, Touchstone and these guys and those guys and, you know, a, a blank, blank production. You know, it's, right. it's flat. We're, we're very much collaborators and uh, it really works out very well. And I think it also sometimes keeps the work fresh. So we're getting a fresh perspective on, on work. So our work doesn't get to be too similar all the time. We, we try to address how we, you know, uh, approach a brand and redesign a brand based upon those key client needs and what they're looking for. And so 
even when we're going out and looking for freelance help, we're targeting a look that right. that creative brief is telling us to chase. So right. it, it, it makes it easier for us. And it's, again, not dissimilar in the early 90s when we were trying to figure out who to do these logos for us because we mm-hmm. didn't, we were getting so much work at the time and there was no, you know, sports branding shop. So we had to find a guy like Michael Durrett who did a phenomenal job with the Knicks logo. Right. Tom Nicosi, who was this, you know, Hall of Fame type uh, art director who had done album covers in the 80s, who was doing their Sonics work for us. Or even later on, a guy like Mark Verlander, this wildly talented guy out of California who helped clean up some of the things we're doing. We were looking mm-hmm. for somebody to kind of freshen up our looks and not be so too heavy handed. So we went out and found guys like that. So we, we talk about ourselves as graphic designers, but really, you know, if I, if I, you know, on my, on my headstone, I, I'd much rather have art director yeah, yeah. <laughs> on there because that's really, even today, what we, we really still do. It's just mm-hmm. that the tools have changed so radically and people can do a lot more of the illustrator work or the photography work or even the video work than they could back in the day. Right. But the quality can't change. It's got to be top shelf. And I think that's what we pride ourselves on is always trying to go in there and deliver really high quality work. And it's just a, a, a spinoff of all the hard work we put in at the NBA. Right. So, well, you mentioned uh, video and, and animation, and I know you guys do a lot of that at Game Plan. So I was curious if you could give us some insight into maybe some of those projects and then kind of talk about what you foresee as the future of entertainment in the sort of in-venue experience as far as presenting experiences at stadiums and, and that type of thing. Sure. So I'll answer the first part first. I mean, we started addressing video projects because around 2005 or so, we started this in late 2003, 2005 or so, we started getting knocks on the door and people saying, we need a little help, you know, with a corporate video. We need to do a marketing video. We want to be able to, uh, you know, dip our toe into that. And, it, you know, around 2005, this thing called YouTube popped up. And so video acceptance on the internet changed so quickly because, Download speed and access to view videos had changed so rapidly. So we had to move quickly. We had to find a set of video producers that can help us address that need. And, uh, and so that's what we did. Um, and, and that's, you know, and I think that's not going to stop. Like the tools are getting cheaper. Video cameras are getting cheaper. Online editing is becoming easier and easier for people. And so that's a place that we've got to continue to narrow our focus and be really, really, really cut at the stone as far as budget, budgets goes because a lot of people are jumping into that business. So we see a lot of competition there these days. Uh, on the interactive and motion graphics side, uh, that's a little different discipline uh, because if you're really good at it, you have an advantage because what happens at a lot of sports teams we've noticed is a lot of times the technical guys who run the boards and who have the ability to flip the switches and make graphics move and whatnot are not really designers. <laughs> right. So you've got, the, you've got the technicians doing the work. And so there's still a lot of real estate for us to cover in that category because I think our work really, we really brand our animations. We just don't create moving graphics. Mm-hmm. And so when we're working, for instance, with the Chicago Cubs, we're bringing in uh, the old Cubs art director, Otis Shepard's work into the, onto the, onto the back of the animations. And you can see that in the design. And so we're reflecting relevancy as to what uh, the Cubs represent in the past in that beautiful ballpark called Ruby Field. 
And yet we're making the animations move smoothly and subtly that really fit that kind of old nostalgia vintage feel. So we think that there's a, still a, a lot of category for us to cover and build our business in the animation side because uh, there are not, you know, and this is not to be critical, but there are not that many people that do it really well. And right. so we get a lot of calls just because people see our work and they're saying, wow, this is, this is, this is really pretty, pretty outstanding. And we'd like mm-hmm. to help us. And we just finished... Uh, a project for the New York Mets. They were looking for some help last minute, and so we put together a series of player animations for their opens um, the last couple of weeks. So that's that's the kind of stuff that lands on our lap. We didn't even go out and really sell that. That was just a call because we worked with the Mets in 2013 on the All Star Game, and their their folks called us, and, uh, and so we've been working with them on that. So, right. uh, as far as your second question, you know, I think that. The ability to interact with scoreboards and do, you know, polling in ballpark and interactive pieces with Twitter and, you know, in the last three or four years, that's really the rapid growth that we see. The ability to use a mobile phone to then, you know, vote for your favorite, you know, Chicago Blackhawk or player of the game or whatever it's going to be, that's really changing rapidly. That, you know, that (laughs) this 20,000 seat, you know, you know, interactivity between fans is a pretty spectacular uh, occurrence. And it's, I still think it's in its infancy as to how fans are going to kind of react with the game presentation, how the game presentation will react, react back to fans, uh, couponing all the different things that are happening these days. I think that's the biggest jump. As far as the big shows, a big show is a big show. So if you got the pyro, you got the on ice projection, all that type of, you know, stuff which is great i don't I'm, i don't mean to demean it mm-hmm. uh it's there and it's only getting bigger and better because the technology is going to improve but i think you see you see a lot of that uniform throughout nba arenas or nhl arenas and you know mlb ballparks or nfl arenas i mean i just think that's you know the bigness of that is as big as you want it to be up until what even happens at super bowl halftime so right that that's not really a place that we we swim too much. That's kind of for the really huge entertainment firms that put that together. Mm-hmm. As far as what we do, you know, high quality, brand relevant animations uh, is really our calling card in that category. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit of, about a minute. For you, sort of have a mantra of sorts that that I've I've seen you refer to a lot with sports as a living brand. So I was curious if you could maybe elaborate on that a little bit. Water cooler conversations still about sports. You know, when you watch, you know, the Super Bowl on Super Bowl Monday, you know, there's a common denominator that people can all align to, you know, with all the channels and all the uh, choices between mobile and people and Facebook and so on. And that, you know, there's uh, this, this massive collection of different ways to, to communicate with the world, but you have these few common denominators yet that are live sports. And, and that's what I think keeps it special. The ability to be able to tune in at seven o'clock and watch a, an exciting NHL playoff game or whatever. That's still something very much like we did 35 years ago. It, it gets me excited to be able to turn on the TV and see a live event and have a rooting interest in it. And I know I've got a two and a half hour window to kind of just engage and watch it. And I think that's uh, what's really special about sports. And that's why I use the term a lot, sports is a living brand, because mm-hmm. it's, you know, people react differently to an off-the-shelf item. You know, you're a, you're a brand loyalty, 
brand loyalty to your shaving cream to spot, but might maybe something you built <laughs> when you were in high school and you had to start shaving, you know, <laughs> right? And right. so there's there's less emotional attachment to those consumer products as there is these entertainment products, which are music and sports, you know, and and to a lesser degree movies. That's kind of a, a canned version of live entertainment, but it's not really knowing what to expect. What's going to be that special moment? Who's going to throw the no hitter? You know, right. I mean, that's the part of it that makes it special. And I think maybe Disney learned a lot about the, the idiosyncrasies of sports as a living brand when they bought the Mighty Ducks back in the early 1990s. And mm-hmm. it's a lot harder to control hockey players than it is Mickey Mouse and Donald <laughs> Duck, <laughs> right? And when it's all said yeah, and done. For sure. And so that was a business they didn't stay with too long because things happen that they can't control. And that's one of the difficulties in sports is that games are played by people and people do interesting things sometimes. Yeah. So that's where uh, you have to bring that along. Well, I think it's also one of the beauties that, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to DVR a game, you know, record a game. Like sports is the one thing you want to see live. You yep. can't go back and look. I mean, you've, you'll see sports center highlights or nowadays you got to be friends t- tweeting about it, you know? Yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> I think I think like fantasy football causes a little bit of that. I want to see how, you know, when I marshal fuck, I want to see his three touchdowns, even though I know he rang up 18 points for me or whatever. I'd want to go see that because I just wanted the thrill of seeing my player who I had no interest in other than the fact that he was my running back. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, but other than that, I could care less about the Colts or whatever. So it's, it is kind of a, it is kind of a strange world, worlds collide. But I think part of it too is just, you know, uh, we use the term a lot here, not only sports as a living brand, but emotional branding. And that's mm-hmm. part of, that's really important. I think to be able to see uh, the energy and emotions that sports brings, uh, you have to bring that as a, as a sports branding uh, agency to each project. You know, I right. think that's part of what we try to do. We try to ramp up, you know, we try to ramp up the emotion really high on whatever we tackle, unless it doesn't fit. But that's, you know, you're you're in the emotions business and the emotions business uh is exciting it's fun it's something that you jump out of bed to to do every day and i think that's sometimes me you know because we're designers and we're kind of more you know in our rooms and doing our design we have to get out from behind the screen and get out there and seeing what's happening and experience the games and understand that what you're creating for people is an emotional tribal experience with their brand that Chicago Blackhawk logo to me is like everything, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when I see them playing and you're working for them, you got to get your, you got to, you got to crank it up. You know, I think it's just really important. And I I think you can play a role in helping the team's uh, energy and excitement. If you, if you take that on with each project. So, yeah. Well, your agency, uh, to kind of talk about football for a minute, your agency recently worked on branding an entire league in South Asia, the Elite Football League of India. And I know included in that, uh, your company worked on the league logo, team naming, individual team identities, uniforms, and brand extensions. And uh, you actually won a Clio Award for that, uh, which is very cool. Uh, So I was curious, can you talk a little bit about that project and what kind of goes into branding a league like that outside of the U.S. in regards to cultural research and making sure that certain names or animals or words maybe don't offend in, in a different culture? Uh, without question, the most interesting project I think I've ever had the pleasure to work on. Just 
uh, when it was first brought to us, I was like, okay, let me understand this. So this is, this is like, this is in India and these are Indian players who've never played American style football before. And you're going to try to play that game in India. And you want us to brand that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, sign me up. Um, And no, it was really, it's been a a tremendous opportunity and a a fun project. We fortunately uh, had people, uh, we've had, we have contacts in India. So when we're creating the names for the teams, they go through a little focus group back in India, the guys that are helping us. And they tell us whether, you know, the sacred cows are going to play or not well to a certain region. So we have to be careful Mm -hmm. as to what we would apply. And so we would create these list of names. Obviously first we do research. So if we're doing the, uh, the Delhi team, for instance, we would do a lot of research on the region. You know, Google and Wikipedia are really big helps to us because we can't go out there and sit with those, you know, local leaders and figure out what Delhi's all about. So we had to do a lot of research, understand the colors, understand, you know, the, what's really important there. And we understood that they, it's kind of a National Guard of India that's out of Delhi. So we came up with the name of Defenders, for instance, for that team. And then the color scheme was similar to some colors in the region. So a lot of the same principles that we would use for a team brand back here in the States, we kind of applied Mm -hmm. to the elite football league of India. Uh, We tried to keep really clean presentation and we knew that for a football team identity, that, that helmet sticker is the most important part of the identity. That's the most visible piece of the identity is the helmet. And so we used we try to create really clean graphics that would work on the side of a helmet and be easy to reproduce in India because we weren't going to be doing a lot of the licensing and a lot of the fabrication and the production here in the States. And it's going to be done in India. So we had to make sure our files were prepared very clean. We didn't have the same quality control that we would here in the States. So we had to look at that as well. And then we really didn't have, the teams didn't have a massive budget. So we went with a very classic kind of Indianapolis Colts kind of style jersey Mm -hmm. uh, that we just changed the colors out of. So it had kind of a three stripe up on the shoulder area with the numbers on the sleeves and on the front with the name above that. And we kind of just did a cookie cutter approach because, again, we weren't going to have a lot of time to produce the jerseys. And we didn't have budgets to do some of the wilder sublimation that you might see being done today in college and pro sports. So we had a we had a, we had a lot of restrictions within our within our problem solving that we had to address. Um, and then we've had the, the one of the funniest things was, of course, is because the budgets were limited, uh, teams only had one jersey color. <laughs> so. We don't have a white jersey for we don't have a home and road jersey for each team right now. Yeah. So we had to kind of figure out, okay, that's gonna be a light blue team, that's gonna be a royal blue team, that's gonna be a navy blue team, that's gonna be a crimson team, that's gonna be a red team, that's gonna be a yellow team, that's gonna be a Saints Gold team, that's gonna be you know. So we had to really create this quilt of team colors, none of which would be the same because when they would play each other, they'd have to be enough color contrast for the guys to be able to tell one team from another. So we had this list of variables that normally we wouldn't have to address here in the States that we had to use as part of our design solution for the, for the league. Uh, and then the names themselves, most of the names are pretty generic because the franchises were moving from place to place to place pretty quickly as investors were coming on board. So we were told to only in one or two instances come up with names that are actually relevant to the marketplace because an owner was already, had already purchased the team. So 
for instance, the Kunai Marathas. Uh, Marathas means warriors in, in India. And so that was one team name that somebody would walk up to you and say, hey, I'm a Maratha fan. And you'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there it makes sense. There it makes sense, you know. So uh, that was one of the few teams that we actually branded with, a, with an Indian name to it. And, um, yeah, no, and they – they play. They're playing. They played a season in 2012, and they're going to go back at it in 2015 and do it all over again. So that's cool. It is really cool. It's uh, there was a documentary filmmaker who went out there. So if you ever get time and you want to waste a few hours, you can go onto efli.com and see their video pages. But they've done these little profiles of some of the different players in the league, and it's 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 pretty amazing stuff. You know, yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll definitely check that out. Is there a certain kind of cohesion uh, when kind of building out a league like that as far as the individual team identities? Are you trying to kind of make it all look like it all belongs? You know, if you sort of just sort of to, to package it all up uh, or or is it just kind of each team can, can push for whatever they want? Uh, it's the former. We really wanted to go in there and create a kind of a style of cousins. Uh, so each of the brands had uh, relative somewhat relative similarities to how they were designed. We didn't want any of them to be too heavy handed. Each of the logos is an icon on itself. And then the city name and the word marks underneath it. So that logo is then just applied to the helmet. So there's no word marks going through the logo. There's no peeling of the marks necessarily. It's very much a standalone logo with pretty much thick, crisp line work around them. So they're, they're bold and strong. When we first started the project, we went back and looked at what we thought was some of the best and most successful expansion uh, leagues, uh, uh, league identities in the expansion world. And we went back way back to the World Football League in 1972 uh, when Gary Davidson was uh, the uh, founder and commissioner. And we really, we really thought they did some spectacular clean work back then. And we also looked at the World Hockey Association back in the early 70s. And uh, we just thought that the cleanliness of the marks themselves uh, spoke to what we wanted to try to do with the Elite Football League of India. We didn't want to create real busy graphics or things that were too complex to understand. Because don't forget, we were bringing something new to India that nobody had any real knowledge of. It would be a lot like starting a cricket league here in the United States. Right. Like, what are these guys? What is this? Why? You know. So you... I think the approach would be to have a very clean, understandable mark. So you didn't, it's already going to be a complex sale to, to understand the game of football there. And you didn't want to muck it up by trying to create these logos that are so busy or so, you know, uh, complex that they only add to the problem instead of help solve the problem. So that's kind of the approach we took. But we really went way back and looked at some of the most successful and what we thought were league startups. And we looked at the World Football League of all, of all the leagues, and we thought that they did it right. It was very clean. It was very traditional. It was very football. And we said, let's use that as our kind of starting point for all this. Very cool. Well, it's, it's definitely an interesting project. And, and I, I knew there was a, a dynamic to it that most of us wouldn't understand, especially with the sort of cultural undertones and things that you have to – look at when you're when you're branding something like that so real quick tom um you know we've you've seen the business change a lot in your time since the even starting in the nba up until now you know we've seen sort of sports design just like you know you mentioned earlier kind of become a viable thing you know we have companies not un you know not unlike your your own company specializing in in sports uh branding and just as an agency and sports creativity 
Uh, there's conferences built around sports marketing and the sports business in general. Uh, I'm curious, uh, what are your thoughts on this sort of landscape and, and what do you foresee as a future of this sports industry as it regards to creative services? That's a, that's a, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> and I could go on and on. I mean, I think it's just, I think the term maturity is probably a key word right now. It's matured really quickly. I mean, to what we, where we were and to where we are today, uh, there's a lot more competition in the category. Um, I think there's uh, a lot of really, um, and this is not to criticize because it's just the way it's turned up, but there's a lot of similar work out there. Right. Uh, and there's a lot of formula work out there. And so it's interesting that if I was, you know, going to say, okay, we're going to stop video production, we're going to we're going to go back and we're going to chase this 24-7 hard. I'd have to have a different doorway to get in, I think, because you'd have to figure out a way to stand out from a lot of the work that's being done out there. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's bad work. The quality of work has never been better. But it's, you know, the, the one or two or three things that happen that you see and you're like, wow, that's, that's jolter. That's what we were trying to do back in the early 90s. And that's why we were using different designers to try to do things that were both cutting edge but relevant to the assignment. And I think that's what I would kind of try to convince the design firms to try to continue to do is, you know, push the unexpected, but make sure it still addresses the assignment. Uh Um, And I think that the future, I think, uh, will be teams. I think you'll see this proliferation of a lot of alternate jerseys keep happening until the licensees aren't making any more money at it. <laughs> so <laughs> right. for some reason they're doing it because they're making some money at it. So I, I think you'll continue to see this battle of uh, kind of these wild uniforms and these like outrageous, you know, helmets that I'm seeing more and more of these ornament kind of helmets with all these reflections and whatnot. But I think that pendulum, you know how it is. Adam and design the pendulum swings one way and then it swings back to the other. Right. Um, I think maybe baseball's done the best job of bringing the pendulum back more to the middle and being more, you know, more kind of religious to who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I look at the major league baseball's teams now and a lot of those teams look like they should look, you know? Right. And I think that was not the case in the seventies and eighties. So I think there's a lot of good things happening there. The NFL, you know, there's some interesting things happening there. The bucks and, you know, the Seahawks and, uh, there's some things that I'm not sure I'm a, the biggest fan of, but again, they're not maybe appealing to me. Mm-hmm. I think the NHL has made a big move. Uh, I think Reebok was struggling a little bit with maybe those all-star uniforms from this year. And they've brought in Eric, uh, Bodemeyer, who's a terrific designer who I, I worked with back in my NBA days to kind of be the lead hockey uniform designer. So that's, I think you'll see uh, a return to some more sanity there. And then as far as the NBA, I, you know, as being an NBA guy, I guess I can kind of shoot on this a little bit. I don't know what's happening there. <laughs> the, the sleeve jerseys and all that. I, yeah. you know, that I'm, not, I'm not a fan of those either subjectively. Well, yeah. You wouldn't, you couldn't even walk into a room in 1995 and say sleeve jersey because David Stern would throw you out of his 20th floor window. <laughs> so, and he would. So, I mean, so yeah. So no, I don't, whatever's driving that, uh, there's gotta be research and some people are buying that, but it just doesn't, that, that tank top silhouette so beautiful. Yeah, it was always, it was always, you know, when you think about it for us, it was a big challenge because it's the most limited amount of real estate you could have in sports. We basically, when I was designing these uniforms with our teams, I had a tank top and a pair of shorts. I didn't have a lot of real estate to do cool stuff with. And I didn't have gloves and I didn't have right. helmets and I didn't have skates and I didn't have all of the 
cool accoutrement that all the other the other three sports leagues have. So mm-hmm. we had a very limited piece of uh, real estate to work on, and uh, I would kill for a set of sleeves now to go back and design <laughs> an NBA. With, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and and I think I'm I'm a basketball guy through and through. Yeah. I love, that's my number one sport, and I love football as well. But but basketball is just sort of I, was, I mean, you know, we're being in Kentucky like this is oh yeah <laughs> this is what yeah. we 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 eat, sleep, and breathe it here. But you know, there's something about the tank top. That just and and the pair of shorts it it says basketball you know yeah, you yeah, kind of get into the yeah. sleeve territory it's like you know I, I get maybe they're kind of trying to do I guess you know some of the old school jerseys back in the day had some maybe some sleeves or something like that but you know it's just it doesn't speak to me personally but you know it's it is what it is <laughs> I just you know I I didn't play a lot of basketball I'm more of a I got kind of a rugby guy build so I didn't play a lot but I just. When I was a kid, we used to play. I would love to put on a tank top because it was almost like you weren't wearing anything. It was so light. Yeah. It was so free-flowing. It was, like, so comfortable, you know, versus, you know, putting on a T-shirt. And a T-shirt's heavier and there's more material. And, I, I you know, I, I just don't get it. But, again, there's something that's telling them to do it. So Well, and, and you know, actually, it's, it's yeah. interesting that you say that because they're actually, uh, for me personally, there actually is a, is a functionality that of, of having the tank top. If you think about getting your arms up for a shot, I know when we were – uh, when I was in high school and and really heavy into into playing, the first thing we would do when we got t-shirts and stuff would be to cut the sleeves out so that we <laughs> yeah, had some you know of some course. flexibility in the yeah. arms. <laughs> yes, uh, we'd get our football jerseys we cut right in the middle of the stomach so we didn't have all that extra stuff on the bottom. Right. Like we, you know, we you know if we could play with you know shirts and skins or just you know a pair of shoulder pads and a little yeah, I mean absolutely. I again, uh, you know. It mystifies me, but again, I'm not the audience and I'm not there making those decisions, but I just look at it and just, it doesn't seem right to me. You've got this beautiful silhouette. Why would you ever do that? And we right. messed with it a little bit. We did those cap sleeves, remember in the late nineties where the sleeves went a little further and they were uh-huh. kind of going over the shoulder. And I hated those too. Those were kind of pushed by the licensing uh, out- team outfitters. And I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, go back to the tank top. But anyway. Yeah. Well, listen, Tom, <laughs> I know we could we could sit here and, and, and chat about this stuff all day. And, and I'd love to, but definitely want to be respectful of your time and also uh, listeners' time. So where can listeners reach out and kind of support you online, maybe through Twitter or website or that type of thing? Uh, sure. My, uh, anybody can feel free to reach out to me at my game plan account. No problem. It's T.O. Grady at game plan, all one word, dot com. And my Twitter handle is uh, uh, T. O'Grady Chicago. And that's, those would be the best places to reach me. You can see, uh, can reach me through our website uh, at gameplancreative.com as well. Very cool. So, well, Tom, I very much uh, appreciate you coming on board, and uh, I'm a fan of your work, and and have sort of, I think I discovered you back in 2003 when I read that AIGA article. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, I remember that. Like this is this is yeah. a thing, man. This guy has yeah. like one of the coolest jobs ever. So very yeah, cool. Very I cool. wanted to thank you real quickly and just uh, applaud what you're doing. It's really nice to have a talented and uh, a dedicated person like yourself putting this together for the industry, and it's. It sorely lacks it, and to have such a sophisticated discussion with all the great people we've had on so much uh, so far is it's just fantastic. So congrats to you, too. Well, Tom, I, I very much appreciate that. 
My next guest uh, may be Matt Lang. I, I say maybe because we've we've sort of scheduled it and and we've been working on getting it going for a while, but we're we're kind of running it through channels at his athletic department. Matt is actually a designer. Uh, he's the director of football creative, actually, at the University of Alabama, and we've we've kind of known each other for a while and. I've, I've sort of seen him move from Louisiana Tech, his alma mater, to the Atlanta Falcons, and then now, obviously, as the director of football creative. So hopefully we can get Matt on the show. If not, we'll, we'll definitely move around some scheduled episodes and, and get someone on. In the meantime, if you want to also check out Matt, he's at, on Twitter, at Matt J. Lang. I want to say a big thanks again to Tom O'Grady for giving us some of his time. Again, as he mentioned, you can follow him on Twitter, T. O'Grady Chicago at T.O. Grady Chicago. And then also be sure to check out his company, GamePlanCreative.com. A couple of things real quick. If you missed the last halftime episode, I discussed the topic of starting, uh, sort of overcoming our own internal resistance when we sit and look at a blank screen and, and executing on the ideas that we as creative people continually have. That's at makersofsport.com slash episodes. Lastly, as always, please take one to two minutes and head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes. Hit the five star and write an experience Uh, write about your experience with the show. It helps the show get discovered by others and sort of helps us all to kind of do our part to drive the quality and and the education of this niche forward. So if you've gotten value from myself or any of our guests, including Tom today, then please share the podcast, rate the content so that others can discover that value for themselves as well. As always, I'll accept any ratings on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whichever application you have to be listening to right now. I'm at T. Adam Martin on Twitter and Dribble. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week.